Good morning. It's good to see you today. We're so grateful for your presence. I know that we have a lot of folks that are traveling. It is a holiday weekend, and we want to keep them in our prayers as they travel this weekend, and hopefully and prayerfully they will return safely. If you are currently in the process of uh, traveling and you are making your way to a specific destination, our prayers are with you. We want to express our appreciation to each of you who are visiting this morning. We're so grateful for your presence. As always, we invite you to come back. Very grateful that you have chosen to come and be with us this morning. I do want to say that uh, hopefully and prayerfully you had a great Thanksgiving, and that's a great weekend, and uh, causes us to reflect upon all the great blessings that we enjoy in Christ, and not just in Christ, but all the blessings that we have from God. We are very, very grateful for that. Uh, I want us this morning to look at the book of John, and in our study today, we're going to be talking about the theme, Jesus on trial. Typically, when we think about Jesus on trial, our minds race to that point in time in his life when he stood before Pontius Pilate as the Son of God and ultimately was crucified. What I want us to do this morning is to look at Jesus from a different angle. I want us to think about Jesus as the Son of God, but in light of what the Scriptures say about Him, I want us this morning to objectively look at what the Bible has to say about the Christ. And as I think about Jesus on trial, it's imperative that all of us step back, reflect upon what the Scripture has to say about Jesus, and then develop in our own mind what we believe about Him. Is he, is he who He claimed to be? Is He the Son of God? And so, as we look at Jesus and as we think about Him being on trial, imagine if you can, going into a court of law. And we're going into a court of law, and the purpose is to identify Jesus. Don't you think that it would be helpful to maybe examine what some witnesses would have to say about him, to listen to their testimony, and then draw some conclusions. During the life of Jesus, he asked on one occasion, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Bible tells us that he was, at that point in time, in the coast of Caesarea Philippi. And those who were present said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, and then there are those that are saying that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked this question, but who do you say that I am? And then I think about it in Matthew chapter 22 on another occasion. When Jesus posed this profound question, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Don't you think that it's mandatory that we come to some consensus or conclusion about the identity of Jesus? Was he who he claimed to be? Is he the Son of God? So with that in mind, I want us to think for a moment or two 
about the trial. And let's just imagine for a moment or two that we are in a court of law. And from my perspective, anytime we step into a court of law, we're looking to be objective and fair in our analysis of what's going on. And so we want to be fair, factual. We want to simply sift through the evidence and then draw some conclusions to to reach a verdict, as we would say. So what about the trial? And what about the witnesses that are found in the book of John? Are there some people that we could call forward to testify about the identity of Jesus? Let me just begin with John the Baptist. You remember Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40 many, many years earlier had foretold of the coming of John the Baptist. And John was to be the one who prepared the hearts and minds of people to be receptive to the Christ. And so Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 3 that when John the Baptist began his public ministry, his message was very simple and succinct. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John tells us in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist was a man sent from God. His work, as I said a moment ago, was to prepare the hearts and minds of people to be receptive to the Christ. And so, the Bible says that John fulfilled that ministry. But John came to bear witness of the light. And the Apostle John said he was not that light, speaking of Christ, but rather came to bear witness of that light. So here is John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Christ. And you remember in John chapter 1, in verse 29, here's what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus on one occasion. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John evidently recognized in Jesus something very special. That He would be that sacrificial Lamb for the sins of the human family. And then John records for us the events surrounding the baptism of Jesus. And John said that he saw the Spirit descending like a dove and remaining on him. And he said, I have seen and testified, listen to what he says, that this is the Son of God. John's conclusion about Jesus, he's the Son of God. He's somebody very special. Let me call another witness. The Apostle Peter. Do you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life, that living bread that came down from heaven? And John tells us in that context that many of those who were present on that occasion, based on what Jesus had said about being the bread of life, they said this is a hard saying, a difficult saying. Who can understand it? Who can accept it? So John said, Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus then asked this question, will you also go away? 
Now I want you to listen to what Peter said in response to that question. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. Wonder how the Apostle Peter had concluded that Jesus had the words of eternal life. In verse 69, the Bible tells us that Peter said, we have come to believe. Now listen to what he says. We have come to believe and to know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So how did Peter and the other disciples conclude that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God? Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 16, a moment ago, we looked at the question posed by Jesus? When the Lord asked the question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He wanted to know, okay, what's the word on the street about my identity? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus then said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Is it possible that the Apostle Peter and the other disciples could sift through that mountain of evidence before them? They had the opportunity to listen to Jesus repeatedly the message that he preached over and over and over again. As Peter said, look, Lord, you have the words of life eternal. Was there something distinct about his message? And then could they not examine the weight of miracles that had been performed time and time and time again? And after sifting through all that evidence, couldn't they conclude that, you know what, this is the Son of God. So you think about, here is the Apostle Peter. And he's on the witness stand, and his conclusion is, you need to understand something. The one that I've been spending time with, he is the Son of God. And then, what about the Apostle John? I mentioned the fact that we're looking at his book. And John has recorded for us a biographical sketch of the life of Jesus. There were four gospel writers. One gospel, four writers. Each writer wrote by inspiration of God. In John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, would provide for us what I would consider to be a thesis statement for the book of John. In John chapter 20, look at verse 30. John said, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But he said, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles recorded, beginning with Jesus turning water into wine at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And John said, beginning on that occasion, he manifested forth his glory. Something special about Jesus. So you examine 
Each and every miracle, beginning with, as I said a moment ago, turning water into wine at a marriage feast, culminating in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And throughout this process, the miracles that have been recorded, the purpose behind these miracles is to authenticate the life of Christ and to certify that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. Now, not only are there seven signs or miracles recorded in the book of John, but there are seven I am statements. Jesus, you recall, would identify Himself as the bread of life or the light of the world or the resurrection and the life, etc. Affirming His deity. So the Apostle John is on record as providing for us some testimony about the Christ. Now, turn over, if you would, and look at chapter 21, the passage read a moment ago. This is a disciple who testifies to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. Why did John write? To produce faith, right? John is writing, lending insight into the ministry of Jesus. Some three, three and a half years in his ministry. And during the course of that time, John has seen a lot. He has heard a lot. He has witnessed a number of things. And his conclusion is the same as that of the Apostle Peter. It's the same as John the Baptist. This is the Son of God. Now, let me call another witness. God the Father. Don't you think it's important for us to hear from the Father? I mean, don't you think that the Father ought to have a right to have his say in the matter. In John chapter 12, Jesus discussed the purpose for his coming into this world that was to be lifted up to save the human family. And in about verse 27, Jesus said to the Father, glorify your name. God the Father spoke from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, with regard to the Father, why did the Father send Jesus into the world? What was His work? Well, Jesus would say, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me in John 6, 38. God the Father was the architect behind the redemptive plan. Jesus was the agent by which that plan was consummated. And so God the Father decreed in the long ago to save the human family through His Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to earth in order to fulfill the will of Almighty God. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 1, you recall when the angel of God spoke to Joseph in a dream, he informed him that that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. 
And he said, She shall bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, for it is he that will save his people from their sins. That was God's design. But what did the Father have to say about Jesus? Did the Father have something to say about his relationship to the Christ? In Matthew chapter 3, the Bible speaks of Jesus coming to John to be baptized by him in the river Jordan. And following the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan, the Bible tells us that a voice came forth from heaven. And God the Father said in the long ago, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father placing His stamp on Jesus as His divine Son. And then think about it in Matthew chapter 17. You remember Jesus went up, went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And the Bible tells us that He was transfigured in their presence. And that mountaintop experience must have been incredible. And the Bible tells us that a voice came forth from heaven on that occasion. And God the Father said, according to Matthew 17, verse 5, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then He said, Hear Him. So think about that for a minute. Here is God the Father saying of Jesus, about Jesus, He's my Son. He is my Son. Now, I think it's important for us to look at what John the Baptist has to say, to listen to the testimony of the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John. It's helpful to listen to what the Father has to say. But don't you think that it's only right and fair to listen to what Jesus has to say? I mean, don't you think that He ought to have the right? Don't you think that He ought to have the right to say something about his identity. So what about Jesus? If he were called to the stand, what do you think he would say? What do you think he would affirm? Well, we're not left to wonder. Again, I think back to the words of Jesus. Jesus Christ was distinct. He was different. There was something special about him. In Matthew chapter 7, following his series of lessons, typically referred to as that great Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that those who were present were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Do you remember in John chapter 7, verse 46, it was said of Jesus, no man, no man ever spoke like this man. When you think about how incomparable his teaching was, never had there been anything like his teaching. His message today stands alone and above any and all messages. And so, you think back to Peter again. And Peter saying in the long ago to Jesus, you have the words of life eternal. Don't you think that 
that idea had been impressed on the mind of Peter and, and the other apostles time and again, that they had concluded that they had come to the conclusion that, you know what, whatever he has to say, we need to listen. I mean, after all, God the Father in our presence said, this is my beloved son, you need to listen to him. And so, in John chapter 14, when Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Or what about when Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24, affirming his deity. He said, except you believe that I am. Now, the translators have supplied the word he there. But really what Jesus is saying is, unless you believe that I am, the I am, by way of definition, means the self-existent one. And Jesus is saying, unless you believe, unless you conclude that I am deity, you'll die in your sins. In verse 58 of that same chapter, Jesus would affirm his pre-existent state. He said, before Abraham was, listen to him, I am. I am. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Underscoring his deity. And do you remember John in John chapter 1 talked about how Jesus was that eternal Word? He said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, He said, and the Word became flesh. And John said, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So you think about Jesus. And the message that he preached, the word of eternal life that he shared. And then as I said a moment ago, the great miracles that he performed. I mean, you can read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are countless miracles. And each and every miracle or sign that Jesus performed was an indication that he was who he claimed to be. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 5 and about verse 36, Jesus said in the long ago, the very works that I do bear witness that the Father has sent me. So here is Jesus turning water into wine in John 2, healing the son of a nobleman in chapter 4, giving sight to a man born blind in chapter 9, raising the dead in chapter 11. Now you think about that. Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave. And you remember in that context, when Jesus told them to remove the stone, they said, Lord, he's already undergoing decomposition. And Jesus said, you remove that, you remove that stone. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Indicating his power over disease, over matter, over nature, over death. Now, what's the truth? We talk about a trial, and putting Jesus on trial, allowing Him to speak for Himself, calling other witnesses. So what's the truth of the matter? You see, here's how it becomes very personal. You have to render a verdict. 
you have to render a verdict. Now let's just think for a moment. In a court of law, based on the testimony that is given, first question, was it factual? Second question, was it fair? What we've read, what we've discussed, examining what these witnesses have said, do you believe them? Do you believe the testimony of John the Baptist? Do you believe what Peter had to say, what John had to say? Do you believe what the Father said? Do you believe Jesus? So, was it fair? Was it factual? Here's what we need to understand. The verdict that we render, the decision that we come to, will ultimately determine our destiny. When Jesus asked the question 2,000 years ago, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? That question is just as profound and personal today as it was the day He raised it in Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus asked the question, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is He? That question is personal, it is profound, it is powerful, and you have to answer it. I have to answer it. So what's your verdict? You know, there are some that would say that Jesus was nothing more than a fraud. Is that true? Was he a fraud? Or what, or is what was said about him factual? You've got to decide. Now, as I think about the mountain of evidence, and we just looked at what John had to say, there's an abundance of secular testimony about the identity of Jesus. But what we're concerned about is what the Scripture has to say. And the Scripture says that Jesus was and is the Son of God. I want to close by reminding you of what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Jesus said, except you believe that I am. Unless you believe that I'm deity, he said, you'll die in your sins. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins, where I am, there you cannot come. So, what's your verdict? It may be the case that you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel. You've never made the decision to live for Jesus. And let's just say in your heart of hearts, you believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. Without question, you believe that. But you've never obeyed His will. What would keep you from becoming a Christian today? What would you need to do? Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So, 
if we obey the gospel, if we do what they did in the first century, the Bible assures us that God will put us in the church, the kingdom of God, Acts 2.47. It's in that realm that we enjoy all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1.3. One of those great blessings is the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. If you're here today, for whatever reason, your life's not what it ought to be, you're a Christian, you're struggling, maybe you've gone back into the world, and you want to be back in fellowship with God, and you'd like us to pray with you and for you, we'd be happy to do that for you today. You know, John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever need you may have, we encourage you to come as we stand and sing.